Our scripture is Leviticus 19:19, Deuteronomy 22:9 through 11. Hybridization and law. First of all, Leviticus 19:19. 19, 19. Leviticus 19:19. 19, 19. Ye shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. Then Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 through 11. Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with divers seed, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown, and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. Thou shalt not wear a garment of divers sorts as a woolen and linen together. Very recently, I was at a college speaking, and I was interested in an article in the student paper written by a young woman. It had reference to attitudes towards people we would regard as criminals. The basic point of view of this girl can best be stated by quoting from her article, and I quote, she takes various sentences which reflect common opinion and then answers them. The first quote, I can't imagine ever having a homosexual for a friend. Her answer to this can you honestly imagine any of your friends not living with some awfully serious hang-up? Then another quote. Westmont students should know the Christian answer to marijuana. Her statement. Just what is the Christian answer? Or is there more than one possible position? Is the use of marijuana inherently evil? Is it wrong because it's illegal? What happens if the law is changed? Then another quote she gives, I am repulsed by the thought of homosexuality, drug addiction, and prostitution. Her comment, some people are repulsed by ignorance of social conditions, hypocrisy, false piety, and willing detachment from reality. Another quote, I can't afford the time to become socially involved in the community problems of Santa Barbara. After all, my first responsibility is to be a student. And her answer, how can I afford not to become involved? What does being a student mean? Can it ever exclude being a person and all does that mean? Now, of course, this girl's attitude is antinomianism. It is the ethics of love applied to every situation. When people abandon the law of God and substitute for it the ethics of love, what they are saying thereby is that situation ethics is the only real ethics. Because if love is going to prevail, then you apply love as the situation wants it. And you have no more law. You've destroyed it. The Bible, of course, says love is the fulfilling of the law. But in this anti-biblical conception of love, love becomes the destruction of the law. Unfortunately, this antinomianism prevails today in modernist as well as in fundamentalist circles. You find it among Lutherans, Calvinists, Anglicans, Baptists, Roman Catholics, and every other circle today. The reason for this is simply that the doctrine of love as a kind of cure-all has taken the place of law. 
without law and without biblical love, which is the fulfilling of the law, society breaks down. Thus it is that laws such as we read today are extremely important because they give us basic social guidelines. And yet, the average person would say, if you cited these laws that I read today, Leviticus 19.19 and Deuteronomy 22.9-11, the average person would say, why, these have nothing to do with us. We are under grace and not under law, which is, as we have seen previously, a perversion of Scripture. Now let us approach these verses of Scripture as law, which is what they declare themselves to be. There are certain implications immediately that appear. First of all, thou shalt not kill, being the overall commandment, and these laws being subordinate aspects of this commandment, thou shalt not kill, it is clear that they favor fertility. To harm or destroy life apart from God's law is forbidden. The hybrid is clearly a violation of this law. Now these are case laws. We have seen previously that the Bible gives us in the Ten Commandments the basic principles and categories of the law, and then in the various specific legislation gives us case laws which illustrate these law, which set forth a minimal case, and if it is true in the minimal case, it is true in every other. The hybrid frustrates the purpose of creation. All things, we are told, according to Genesis, were created with their seed in themselves, destined to be fertile. Hybridization seeks to improve God's work. It seeks to gain the best of two diverse but somewhat related things. The result is a limited advantage but a long-range loss, including sterility. Second, these laws clearly require respect for God's creation. We are not to change one kind into another or to attempt it. All things, we are told, were created good. Now, when we hold to evolution, we cannot see all things as created good, because evolution is the survival of the fittest, and the best you can say about anything is that it is the fittest, not that it is the best, not that it is morally the most desirable thing. And it has survived thus far, may not survive in the next 10,000 years, so that man, for example, we are told, may be a mistake. Thus, we cannot, under an evolutionary perspective, see all things as created good. But man, under God, has been created good, and the world around him has been created good. Man can kill and eat plants and animals, he used this creation under God's law, but he cannot tamper with it. He cannot hybridize, which is to violate God's time. And the penalty for it, of course, is sterility. You can cross a horse and a donkey, but the mule is sterile. You can put all kinds of new varieties of squash and carrots and the like on the market, but the penalty for these is sterility. They will not produce a seed. And while they will have certain advantages, the mule has certain advantages over the horse, they have marked disadvantages and a great, greater frailty, sensitivity, nervousness is with the mule so that they are real handicaps. Third, related to this law against hybridization, are the sexual laws with regard to violation of kind, laws against homosexuality 
and laws against bestiality, which appear, for example, in Leviticus 18, verses 22 and 23, and many other places in Scripture. These practices were a part of the cult of chaos, the religious practices of antiquity, and they appear again in every culture when there is a revolutionary movement, and this is why they are reappearing now. According to scripture, the penalty for these offenses is a death. This was the law in early America, the death penalty, and it was enforced. It is significant that Merrill Unger's Bible Dictionary, which is premillennial and dispensationalist in its perspective, will not mention the death penalty for these offenses as a part of scripture. This is the radical antinomianism of so many today. Now forth, St. Paul, as he refers to these laws, takes the law with regard to the use of an ox and an ass together, and he brings out the broader implications of this law. He declares in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? So that very clearly St. Paul states here what already had been stated repeatedly in Scripture, that mixed marriages, marriages between believers and unbelievers, are forbidden. But at the same time, he also states that unequal yoking is the principle in the Deuteronomic passage. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. What is the principle there? Unequal yoking. So that unequal yoking of any kind runs counter to God's law. This appears also very clearly in the laws with respect to marriage. Man was created in the image of God and woman was created from man in the reflected image of God in man. And woman was termed a help meet, which means a reflection, a front or mirror. In other words, the woman is to reflect the man's nature and supplement, assist, further him in his calling. This means, therefore, that if they are unequally yoked, she cannot be of any assistance to him in his calling. So that if it is an inter-religious marriage or an inter-racial or inter-cultural, normally the disparity is too great for it to be a valid marriage in terms of God's standards. The burden thus of the law is clearly against interreligious, interracial, intercultural marriages, in that they normally go against the very idea of community which marriage is to establish. But unequal yoking applies, of course, to much more than marriage. It applies to any kind of social integration. Today we are told that we must have a world, according to the UN Charter, in which there are no discriminations with respect to race, color, or creed. In other words, there can be no religious lines of discrimination. But this, of course, is an unequal yoking. Now to return to the second point, the fact that this law clearly requires respect for God's creation. We saw that God pronounced on creating all things that they were good. Men cannot treat their fellow men or any part of creation, therefore, with contempt. Thus, while we cannot have unequal yoking, we cannot have a contemptuous treatment of any man or any part of creation. Animals, for example, we are told in one series of laws in Scripture are to be treated with kindness and with humanity. For example, 
The Sabbath rest is to be a rest for animals as well. The Sabbath year, the, the fields are allowed to remain so that strangers and wild animals may eat of the harvest. Again, the threshing ox must not be muzzled. The laborer, whether it is an animal or a man, is worthy of its hire. Again, the law forbids killing both mother and young of birds, for example, or any animals, so that there be no destruction of species. Again, there must be a return of stray domestic animals, both as a kindness to the animals and to their owner. Overburdened beasts must be helped, and so on. But respect for creation means far more than kindness to animals. It means recognizing God's handiwork, that he has a purpose for all things. One of the things that characterized my schooling from the early grades on up through university, and apparently is still with us because I heard it on the radio this morning, was the idea that all bacteria are bad and that the scientific ideal is a germ-free, bacteria-free world. Of course, such a world would mean death. And yet we are actually told now that by 1990, we will have such a sterile wor world that milk itself, being rendered totally sterile, will sit on a table and will never spoil. In such a world, of course, not only the bacteria will be gone, but man also. Such a world and such a science represents a travesty on God's creative purpose. It is interesting to note what Lewis Bumford has said with regard to this kind of science. And I quote, What will be left of the plant world, Dr. Mumford states, if we allow the basically village culture founded on a close symbiotic partnership between man and plants to disappear? There are plenty of people working in scientific laboratories today who, though they may still call themselves biologists, have no knowledge of this culture except by vague hearsay and no respect for its achievements. They dream of a world composed mainly of synthetics and plastics, in which no creatures above the rank of algae or yeast should, would be encouraged to grow. A biological factor of safety existed when 70 to 90 percent of the world's population was engaged in cultivating plants. In the past century, this biological factor of safety has shrunk. If our leaders were sufficiently awake to these dangers, they would plan not for urbanization, but for ruralization. As insects are eliminated, Dr. Mumford points out, the plants that depend upon them for fertilization are doomed, end of quote. We might add that in some parts of the country, the pollination of trees in the spring is becoming very much of a problem. In fact, in some parts of Pennsylvania, there is a crisis in this respect because the indiscriminate spraying by air of federal agencies has killed off the bees and wiped out beekeepers. Dr. Francois Mergen of Yale University has called attention to what this fundamental disrespect for creation is doing. And his analysis is a very interesting and telling one. And I quote, A fuller understanding of natural processes is an absolute must if we are to avoid major environmental calamities. Some past environmental disasters are attributable to our abuse of natural systems. The World Health Organization carried on extensive programs of pest control for the people of Borneo. In order to eradicate mosquitoes, considered a pest of serious dimension, the organization sprayed villages, village areas extensively with DDT. Shortly after the application, palm-thatched roofs of the village houses began to collapse. It turned out that a certain caterpillar which feeds on the palm fronds had suddenly increased. Because of its habitat, the caterpillar was not exposed to the DDT. 
but a predatory wasp, which ordinarily keeps the caterpillar population at non-destructively low levels, was vulnerable to the poison and consequently was annihilated. Harrison goes on to relate further ecological reactions to spraying. To eradicate flies inside the village houses, world health workers sprayed DDT indoor. Up to that time, the flies were controlled by a little lizard that inhabits many homes in Borneo. The lizard kept on eating the flies, which were now heavily contaminated with DDT, and then the lizards began to die. The lizards, in turn, were eaten by house cats, and the house cats, in turn, died from DDT poisoning. As a result of cats being wiped out, the rats began to invade the dwelling. As we all know, rats not only consume human food, but they also pose a serious threat of spreading diseases such as the plague. The rats appeared in such large numbers that the World Health Organization had to parachute a fair, fresh supply of cats into Borneo in an attempt to restore a balance that had been successfully operative but unrecognized by the technicians who had come to help. I recount this true and recent story because it shows the interrelationship between living beings and their environment. To live in harmony with his environment, man must modify many of his actions and know nature. In reality, we can consider ourselves lucky that none of the scientific discoveries has apparently interrupted the food chain processes to the extent where they have caused major disasters. So far, I have talked about very elementary facts that are well known to ecologists, if however, these things are known to the administrators and engineers who plan manipulations of the environment. They seldom make it apparent. The myth that technology is the solution to all our problems, however, is being questioned more and more by planners as well as by the public at large. However, we can add that Dr. Mergen is too optimistic in feeling that it is being questioned. The damage continues very extensively. I myself have seen in one area where I lived some years ago a decision that to get rid of uh, coyotes who were killing deer, they would have to kill the coyotes. So a coyote killing program went into effect. Of course, in no time at all, they had a deer problem because the weak deer were now breeding, whereas before all the weaklings were killed, the weak and the diseased ones, by the coyotes. But they also had a problem in that now the squirrels took over the area because the squirrels and the field mice, which were killed by the coyotes also, were now without a natural enemy. And so they had to embark on a further program of killing the squirrels. But, of course, the poisons went into the ponds, and the ponds then saw a radical death of the fish in the ponds, and so they had a mosquito problem. And so they had to then consider spraying for mosquitoes. In other words, the more they acted, the more damage they did, forgetting that all these things have, in God's providence, a purpose. Wipe out your squirrels and your gophers and your moles and the like. And what do you do? You create erosion. Because the amount of water absorbed in heavy rainfall by these mole and squirrel and gopher holes is tremendous. And it is an important part of both aerating the soil and seepage of water downward. It is interesting to note that in some areas, a little bit in the way of an old-fashioned respect for God's creation is coming back and is doing wonders. For example, in Griggsville, Illinois, a far-seeing man, J.L. Wade, started a campaign in 1962 to treat God's creatures with some respect, beginning with a purple mark. The report is very interesting, and it is revelatory of what a knowledge of God's creation 
does in the way of producing a more successful treatment of problems. The J.C.'s, and I quote, of Riggsville installed 28 Purple Martin houses along its main street. The Purple Martins moved in and the town had some astonishing results. Citizens found that their mosquito problem was solved. At last, townspeople were able to enjoy lawns, gardens, and patios without annoyance. That was only the beginning. For the town's annual ferret had been customary to spray with chemical pesticide to control biting insects. But that year, by some fortuitous circumstance, the usual shipment was sidetracked to another town and failed to arrive in Griggsville in time. But the Purple Martins had arrived and were hungry. Since these birds live solely on live insects, they thrive at the fair. When the chemical firm troubleshooter arrived in town and apologized for the shipping delay, the fair committee told him they no longer needed the pesticides. In their words, we told him if he could find a fly or a mosquito on the premises, we'd order ten times as much spray. He couldn't and took the order back. The Griggsville experience broadened out to neighboring farmers who recognized the economic values of attracting purple marks. Cattlemen, for example, learned that nesting boxes for these birds set in stockyards were an asset by having fewer insects bother livestock. This yielded better cattle gain. The initial Purple Martin project in Greeksville was so successful that it soon involved the local Boy Scouts, school children, community park board, Western Illinois Fair Board, businessmen, farmers, orchardists, state and municipal officials, conservationists, civil workers throughout the nation, and the snowballing continues. The promotion of the Purple Martin spread to many other communities. For example, in Laverne, Iowa, $200 worth of insecticide had already been purchased, but after attracting Purple Martins, they did not have to resort to even $25 worth of spray. The article goes on to quote how much has been done in many areas. Then it says, in publicizing this bird, the fact has often been quoted that a single Purple Martin can devour about 2,000 flying insects daily. Mr. Wade feels that this is a gross underestimation. Based on research, the actual average seems to be between 10,000 and 12,000 mosquitoes daily when these insects are plentiful. The purple martin will also eat flies, beetles, moths, locusts, weevils, and other insects which we consider damaging or as nuisances. The list can go on indefinitely. All insects and animals have their God-given place in a, the basic life cycle of nature and a respect for God's creation involves treating all things with knowledge and with restraint. Even weeds, as Dr. Kokenauer has pointed out in a very important book on weeds, Guardians of the Soil, are important and that weeds go down to the subsoil and bring up minerals to the topsoil and therefore have an important plant place in the life cycle and weeds can restore a soil that is worn out. Years ago, Louis Pasteur said that with diseases, the soil is everything. That is the condition of the recipient. Sir Albert Howard, for example, in his experiment with animals in India, showed that when the animals were given proper nourishment, when they were on good feed and good soil, they could mingle with animals that had diseases like grinder pests, septicemia, and foot and mouth diseases without contracting them. Thus, the Christian, as he faces the world, must respect the world. He must realize that the world is not an enemy. It is not a hostile element. It is God's handiwork. The world was created by God, and we are always to remember as we deal with the world, what was God's purpose here in creating this? But at the same time, while the world was created essentially good, it is fallen and not normative. Thus, thus 
perfectionism with regard to nature is anti-Christian. Everything has a purpose within creation. But God created man and set him in the Garden of Eden with a purpose to use and to develop nature. Thus, while hybridization is forbidden, the improvement of various species is definitely a part of our responsibility. Thus, we do not look back to Eden. We look forward to the kingdom of God. Those who hold to a perfectionism with regard to nature are anti-Christian. The logic of this perfectionism with regard to nature, holding nature as normative, is to eat raw foods only because you can't improve on nature. It is to be a nudist because you can't improve on nature. It is to deny housing because housing is an improvement on nature. This is all very, very definitely hostile to scripture because while creation is essentially good from the biblical perspective, it is to be developed by man. There is to be improvement in terms of the guidelines laid down by God. Thus, hybridization is not Christian, but improvement is definitely the Christian responsibility. Hybridization and unequal yoking involve a fundamental disrespect for God's handiwork, and it leads to futile experimentation. But for us as creationists, the fertility and the potentiality of the world rests in its law, in its pattern, in its fixity. Dr. Walter Lammers, who has won 11 international prizes in genetics, has stated that his advantage over other geneticists is that they have no sense of law, so they indulge in futile experimentation. But he, as a creationist, believes that there are fundamental laws and he works within that framework, so that he does not waste his time on futile experimentation. Thus, the significance of these laws with respect to hybridization is that the penalty for their violation is sterility. But respect for these laws leads to vitality, to fertility, and to scientific progress. We are therefore under God to look ahead to a nature that surpasses the Garden of Eden, to a nature that abounds in fertility and improves progressively as man under God works to establish the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that thou hast created all things good and hast ordained that we as thy servants, as kings over creation unto thee, have a calling to exercise dominion, to subdue the earth, and to develop it, unto thee and in terms of thy law. Bless us for this purpose. Recall us, our Father, to thy word and to thy law that we might use thy handiwork to thy glory and to our happiness and prosperity in thee. Bless us to this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now with respect to our lesson? Yes. To what? We are to use things for our benefit and what? Oh, yes. Well, 
the strict conservationists who believe just in preserving, not in using, are, of course, carrying something too far. Actually, the conservationists are very often creating areas where the greatest exploitation goes on. The federal areas, the federal lands, the federal forests which are set aside are not the best areas of conservation, for example, with respect to timber. Because the federal government is not operating on a dollar and cents basis. The areas that are set aside by the federal government in the name of conservation are leased out, many of them, to ranchers, and uh, these are wealthy corporate uh, entities who run cattle exclusively in government land. Whereas, for example, an area such as that owned by Weyerhaeuser will have far better conservation, true conservation, because it is in terms of a continuing use. For example, there is almost as much forest in Maine today as there was when the first settlers landed in Maine. Moreover, these forests now, because they are operated in terms of commercial use, are better operated and more productive than in their natural condition. Thus, corporate entities, large corporate entities, are geared to production for human use but a long-range program to preserve their future income. The devastation you find in foresting, for example, is largely with small uh, timber firms that simply lease an area and cut it and move on. Their perspective is short-term. Now, the strict conservationist who feels that uh, utility is no consideration is often defeating his own end because nature was created by God to have utility. And what we need is a happy balance between exploitation and uh, no usefulness at all. Yes, there is generally an unfair picture presented of the lumber companies by the federal government. Not that there have not been abuses, but the abuses are equally as real, if not greater, in federally controlled areas. Yes. The Purple Martin does not eat bees. Never. No. What they have done is to restore the balance of nature in that area. The Purple Martin has its natural enemy. But the point was that spring was killing off the uh, birds as well as others. No, not if you stop interfering and let them come back. They take care of themselves. Yes, yes. They were simply restored, yes. Yes, love is total acceptance of everything. 
It means then that you have to accept everything and tolerate everything. It means that there is no discrimination with respect to good and evil, right and wrong. This is the modern definition of love. And of course it is thoroughly anti-Christian. Yes. It is Yes, it is both literally meant as well as symbolic. There is to be no mingling in one garment, you see. And of course, uh, this was tried some years ago. Uh, mingling uh, linen and wool, and uh, it was very unsuccessful. It doesn't produce a good garment, and it does not. Uh, and it violates the principle. Synthetics are usually made out of one material. It means the two diverse materials are not to be used in the same garment. Yes. Yes. You have what? You have cotton. Yes. What is Dacron made of? Yes. Uh, well, that's a very interesting point. I would say we would have to say that it is not valid, and it brings out an interesting point for me because the use of Dacron leads very definitely to heavy perspiration. It's not... There is something about it that is not healthy, as far as I'm concerned, and others report the same thing. Yes, that could be. But there is still a principle. The Bible requires the integrity of... Yes. Yes. Yes, Jeanette. but it is still stated as a principle, a general principle that we are to avoid hybridization and then we are to avoid mingling of dissimilar things. Now, uh, we don't always know the reason for a law, but ultimately, if we abide by it, we find that some kind of principle develops. Someday we may know why this is a valid principle. Meanwhile, we're simply asked to abide by it even though we don't understand it. Yes. That's possible. I don't know. I'd have to think that one over. But we should be careful in this area. In other words, before we move too rapidly into any area to uh, try to improve on God's work, we need to treat what he does with respect. There's a fundamental principle here. It summons us to be cautious. It is possible on due study that such a thing can be verified. Now the rabbis puzzle over this at great length with regard to clothing, with regard to hybridization and so on. They thought, for example, that you could sow uh, wheat in an orchard because the two are too diverse 
to create a problem, one for another, but you could not sow wheat and barley together in the same field or adjoining one another. Now, there is a good principle there in the rabbinic conclusion which appears in the Talmud. The, there is no possible conflict between wheat and apples, for example. There is between wheat and barley. So, in terms of that principle, uh, perhaps someone who has a bench here could explore synthetic materials and see. But this was the direction of rabbinic thinking and exploration on this subject. I don't pretend to be in any kind of expert in this field, but I do feel we need to proceed with caution. Yes. As I say again, this is an area for experts. I'm simply stating the guidelines which, which Scripture gives us here, and then uh, to deal with the application, we'll take an expert in some areas. Yes. That's probably an element, yes. In other words, for you to be uh, disciplined, 
is evil in your sight. It doesn't strike you as good. But it is not evil objectively. This is the significance there. Mm-hmm. Yes.